0: Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture which you've given us in the book of Acts of the early church. It's been so useful to so many Christians. May it be useful to us as well, we humbly pray, by uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And let us see clearly what it is you would have us to see. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These are famous verses these are favorite verses of Christian people especially verse 42 though as I studied them through the week I was struck by the way in which uh, really if you only read verse 20 42 you'll have a very trunc- truncated view you have to take the whole thing together verses 42 through 47 and indeed the whole of chapter 2 to have a clear picture of the early church what she was about what she did what her life was like but there are certain things which stand out immediately. In these verses, such as the fact that they were led by the apostles, certainly their prominence is uh, obvious. Uh, Another thing is that this came about as a result of Pentecost, the promised outpouring or baptism of the Holy Spirit. Also, that this tiny gathering became a multitude. These things are more or less obvious. And it is for this reason that some have called, and I think I even said this at one point, I think I might have even titled the sermon, Uh, with this title, some have said that the church was born on this day. And to some extent, I'm still prepared to say that, although I'm not sure that's the best way uh, to phrase the issue. It really is better to say that the church as she then existed was transformed into something better and more glorious, for uh, there already was a church. We know that indeed. uh, We read of the church of 120 people led by the apostles. There already was a church, and before that there was... Uh, the nation of Israel, at least the remnant as it it, then existed. Well, there was a church, but something glorious happened on the day of Pentecost, and now the church took on a new form. Uh, She took on the form of the new covenant church, the new wineskins, the new wine. That's what we have here. The wineskins, by the way, being the church, the new wine being the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the sense that we get. We have seen how the church began to take uh, shape and to grow already. Like I said, verses 43 through 47 complete the picture. But we've already been looking at that Uh, as a result of Peter's preaching. We read last time in verses 40 and 41 that uh, many were converted and they were baptized and thus added to the church. And there's a similar statement at the end of verse 47 and the Lord added to the church those who were being daily, those who were being saved. That That is a strong parallel to what is said just before the beginning of this new section, verse 41. Uh, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. My interest in this sermon is primarily the practice of the early church. Uh, having been formed or taking on this new glorious form, what was her practice? What were they about? What did they do now that they came, these people, into the church who were saved daily? Obviously, uh, such things must interest us, for we too, like they, are a church. We are, uh, therefore, in the same position. We've been saved, we've come into the church, but that doesn't settle the issue. We're not left to ourselves as to how we worship God any more than we were left to ourselves as to how we were saved. God takes a great interest in these things, and he's guiding us along the way. The book of Acts is given to us as a help in these things. And like the reformers before us, I mean the leaders of the Reformation, men like Luther and Calvin, we must see the practice of the early church as normative of our own practice. Not in every sense, obviously. I, I think I refer to it in the prayer. We don't have apostles today. We don't have miracles. We don't have... Flames of fire and tongues of fire and all that sort of thing. Uh, The the, the supernatural miraculous element has gone. But but the strong features, the abiding features, and I I call them the strong features even because they were really the things that stood out most prominently. The greatest evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God is that men were being saved and they were coming into the church. And then they began to experience together the life. And the power of the kingdom of God together. Now that's the thing that's abiding. That's the thing we're still about. That's what they were about. It is a great interest therefore for us to notice what they did as they came into the church. As the church took on this new and glorious uh, form. Here is a pattern for us to follow. And indeed to the extent that we deviate from this. We can be sure that we're slipping into decline. An error. And like Calvin uh, said to uh, Satteliteo in his reply to Satteliteo, it's one of the great defenses of the Reformation. He said, "You know, Satteliteo, I'm not so much interested in, in whether my practice conforms to the current practice of the church. My great interest is whether it conforms to the fathers. That is uh, the early church. That's my great interest. And in so far as the church today has deviated from it, Calvin said, it has ceased to be a true church. And that is my own view, and I hope it's your view as well." Here is the measure of true Christianity as it's found in the church. Now, there are various ways that we can look at this. We can look at it, first of all, in general. If we take chapter 2 as a whole, not just looking at verses 42 through 47, we're able to notice certain key practices, going back at least to the prior uh, section, uh, which was verses 38 through 41, if not uh, even further back. Uh, the thing that stands out most obviously is the preaching of the Apostle Peter. Uh, just as you find at the beginning of the New Testament, the the uh, the prophet John preaching and then Jesus preaching after him. So Peter was preaching in a like uh, manner. Here's the foundation. The foundation of what? Well, of man's salvation. But also, let let us be clear, it's the foundation of the church. When Jesus says to Peter himself, and now, no surprise, we find Peter is the one doing this very thing. He says, Peter... Uh, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Well, what's the foundation? It isn't Peter himself, but it's the preaching of Peter and the preaching of the apostles, the apostolic doctrine. Here is the rock upon which Christ builds his church, namely the doctrine being, as we saw in his sermon, it is the doctrine of Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God who became man and came into this world and everything that Peter has to say about him. He suffered, he died at the hands of men, he was raised by the power of the Father, he's ascended on high, he's poured out his spirit upon the church. All of these things constitute the preaching of the apostles and the foundation of the church. That's the first thing. Beyond that, we find, again, in general, this general picture of the church taking chapter 2 as a whole, a call to repentance along with baptism. And so already we see, even before we come to verse 42, we see the sacraments have come into the picture. Which verse was that? Uh, it's verse 38. Let every one of you be baptized. Then again in verse uh, 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. Now the, the, the sacraments are accompanying the preaching, which is essential to what the church is. In verse 42, now coming to that, the list begins to grow and the picture is more or less complete. We read of the breaking of bread, which refers to the Lord's Supper, going back to our Lord's last meal with his disciples, which we read of at the end of the Gospels. They they broke bread together. They observed the Lord's Supper uh, according to the Lord's command. So the church continued to do this. We're not surprised to find that here. Another thing we find is Christian fellowship, the emphasis on the fact that people were saved and thus added, and they joined together in Christian fellowship. Is that not, after all, what a church is? Uh, The word ecclesia it's it's a gathering, and it's an assembling. People who are coming together with a shared interest in the same truths. It's not just a gathering, but it's a fellowship. A common interest, a common goal. As well as we notice here a a shared concern for one another. They weren't just interested in the same doctrines or the same truths. They were actually interested in one another. They began to look after one another just as soon as they came together in this newly formed fellowship. Do you see what kind of fellowship it was? This has been an interesting subject of discussion and debate ever since uh, uh, this happened. And these words were written in Luke's account not only were they worshipping God as they came together, but they were, they were caring for one another in a physical and a material way. We find in addition to that, not only the word and the sacraments and the, and the fellowship of believers, but the ministry of prayer. How easily we forget that. But here it was, a key aspect to their fellowship as they came together in a gathering, so they prayed. Now, it simply says that uh, they gave themselves to prayer, something like that. I don't remember the exact phrasing. They, uh, well, they, it says, and in prayers. That's all it says. But the question uh, that I have, and that perhaps you have, is well, what kinds of prayers were these? And it turns out that's a highly fascinating question. And it's a very useful question as well from the standpoint of worship. The question of uh, how are we to pray in worship? For these were corporate prayers. These were uh, elements or aspects of their worship. As I say, it's very fascinating to me to consider this. The, the types of prayers, the variety of prayers that the early Christians were saying as their practice flowed out of, of uh, the late stages of Judaism. Uh, prayers such as we find... Uh, in our own worship, you have prayers, for instance, of intercession. It seems that was uh, the, real, the real emphasis, praying for others, praying for the church, and so on. You also had prayers of confession, prayers of supplication, uh, and so on, prayers of invocation. But finally, we notice the ministry of praise and of song. They were praising God. They were singing. They were rejoicing. All of that stands out in the total picture. But then as a second point, let me put it in Luke's exact terms as it is found in verses 42 and following. And the first thing that we notice is the word continuing. He says, and they continued steadfastly. Uh, So also verse 46, so continuing daily. Not only the word continuing, but the word daily. And the sense is obvious. Uh, Indeed, the sense, I I think, is even humbling. It is that there was at that time an insatiable desire among the people of God to worship. And this is the sort of thing that you find. Uh, Peter speaks of it as a newborn babe that uh, has this voracious appetite for the the milk of God's word. Well, that's what was happening here. It's it's what was happening in the days of the Reformation. I was fascinated to read so many years ago when I first studied the subject of the Reformation That they held multiple services on Sunday and then daily services in Wittenberg and daily services in Geneva. There was this insatiable desire. There was not only to hear the word but a desire to come together. The spirit was moving and the people of God were gathered together under the preaching. You find that not only at the Reformation and the early church but also in every time of revival. Invariably you will find that one service alone a week will not satisfy the people, not even two. Uh, but they will be coming together daily. Now, does that condemn us? Uh, not really, not exactly, because these are everything I'm, uh, I'm saying uh, are things that cannot be manufactured. You, you, you can't force the issue. All that I'm saying is that when the spirit comes, well, he'll do, he'll do two things. He'll supply preachers and preaching. He'll make sure, well, if the pastor can't do it all, although he'll find a new faculty to prepare new sermons like such as he's never found before. That can match the desire, but even if he can't, God will raise up new preachers. Don't think that Luther or Calvin were the only ones preaching in those two cities. No, there were other preachers as well. You even find in the early church uh, that uh, the the deacons were preaching. uh, And I like to remind the deacons of that from time to time. (laughs) Uh, but, but, uh, But you'll also find that the people simply can't get enough. They'll just keep coming back. But that's what happens when the Spirit comes. They'll continue. They'll continue steadfastly in these things. What did they continue to do? Well, they continued, he says, to adhere to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's the first thing, verse 42. And it's interesting to notice how Luke puts it. The sense is that these things are to be taken together, namely the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, so that, uh, if I could phrase it slightly differently, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the apostles' fellowship. So they came together under the teaching of the apostles. That's what was primary. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles in those days were foremost among them. They were the leading figures. They were the preachers. It was their doctrine that brought them together and to which they adhered as a body. And here is what constituted their fellowship as a newly formed church. It was apostolic fellowship in the sense that the teaching of the apostles was primary. In other words, they didn't just gather in a haphazard way and say, well, what are we going to do? What, what's our priority? What's our program? No, everything was led by the apostles and primarily by their doctrine. And it was insofar as they continued in the apostles' doctrine, so that uh, so they continued in apostolic fellowship. And really we could say the same thing is true today. insofar so far as we continue in the apostolic doctrine. So we continue in the apostolic fellowship. And then there is the breaking of bread and prayer. As they came together. We're still in verse 42. The sacraments were observed. So to communal prayer. Nothing here was done for the individual. It was all done for the edification of the body. As they observed the Lord's Supper and said prayers together, together with uh, the preaching and teaching. In essence, what we see here is that a kind of liturgy was formed and observed in the early church. There was an order of worship. There was not only an order, but there were elements of worship that constituted the order. Those elements, once more, were the preaching, the prayers, and the sacraments. But don't stop there. We read in the next verse, in verse 43, that great fear fell on them all, or or simply fear. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. It's interesting to notice how often verse 42 is preached on its own. As I say, it's a favorite verse. Of anyone who loves, indeed, the Protestant Reformation or the idea of Reformed worship. It's a favorite verse. But let's not forget about verse 43. It comes in the same breath. It's part of the same picture. Let us be sure to quote verse 43 along with verse 42. Here were men and women gathered together. They were continuing steadfastly in these things in a spirit of joy, gladness, but fear as well. I'll leave it there for more. I'll have more to say on that later. Another thing we see here, and I referenced this as well earlier, let me say a little more about it. It was how they shared all things in common, verses 44 and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now that clearly isn't an absolute statement, because uh, I mean that they sold everything they had and they gave it to the common purse. The reason... I'm certain that that's not an absolute statement. It's more of a general kind of statement is because many of these early Christians still had homes and they hadn't sold their homes. They were going from house to house and worshiping. They were gathering together, not only in the temple courts, but in people's homes. I think that's in verse 46, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart so the thought is, is something more like this uh, that that you get later in First Corinthians chapters eight through ten, or is it Second Corinthians? I can't remember. But the the apostles telling people uh, to give, uh, to be charitable, to be generous, not out of compulsion but voluntarily, out of the free will uh, and 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 insofar as they feel compelled inwardly. The picture here in Acts chapter two is something like that. That as they came together, they were selling what they had, or or at least they were willing to sell what they had for the common good. And especially for the benefit of those in need. So that as we look at this picture of the early church, we find one of the most striking pictures of Christian fellowship that has ever been known. We see that brotherly love prevailed among them. Next, we notice the element of praise in verse forty-six or or verse forty-seven. They were praising God. Constant praise. They were singing to God. One thing you will find inevitably and invariably is that when when men are truly saved and they are full of the Spirit, they'll have a desire to praise God. It will be their constant desire. Their constant practice. They were continuing daily. Not only were they breaking bread from house to house with gladness. But they were praising God. They were delighting to sing to him. Not just here and there but always. That's the picture here. It was constant. They continued to do so. But do you notice this as well? In verse 47, they had favor with men. Not only were they praising God, but they had favor with men. Thus far, we've considered their relationship within the body, the believers to one another. But here we have a sense of the relationship of this newly formed fellowship with the world, with the outsiders. They had favor with men. Now, in some sense, that's surprising, isn't it? You will say that isn't always so, and certainly Luke is prepared to agree. Uh, very soon we will read of the fury of men, not the favor of men, but the fury of men. How they hated these first Christians. But let us also be fair and balance that it isn't simply the fury of men that we know and we will know as Christians, or that these first Christians knew, but that there will also be an element of favor. That there will be those who look upon us favorably as a result of what we're doing and who we are. Especially at such times when the church is as she should be, functioning in this way. When that is the case, in general, she will have a good reputation. And that's the kind of thing you find throughout the scriptures of the New Testament. That believers are to have a good reputation with unbelievers insofar as it depends upon them. Yes, of course, there will be times when they hate us, they despise us, they revile us. But in general, our reputation will be one which is good. For our light is shining and men are praising God because of us. They are even, we see here, uh, prepared to listen. And many are converted as a result. You see, men are placed in this favorable disposition. Not just so that they're saying kind things about the church. But they're actually listening to what Christians are saying. We've gotten the interest of the world. That's the idea. That's the relation. Of the church to the world. When she's full of the spirit. Many are not only listening. But many are coming into the church. But the last thing that we see. In Luke's picture. Is that the church was growing. This is another daily. So continuing daily. With one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Amazing to think this tiny number of people, 120 souls. That is the extent to which the church was in those days. In the whole world, there were only 120 Christians. And yet, look at her now. God was increasing her numbers. How was he doing so? Well, this is a a subject of great interest today. It's the whole question of church growth. How do you get a church to grow? Well, only in this way. Only in the way that we've been considering. For it is, as I'll say in a bit, it's the Lord who causes the growth. And if he doesn't do it, well, it isn't a growth any of us should be interested in. This is not a herding of the goats. No, let us be content rather to be 120 or even less. If only that we might be composed of sheep truly and wait for the Lord to add to our numbers. Our interest is not in herding in the goats, in entertaining them with the delights of uh, this present age. That's the modern program of church growth. I don't have any interest in it. And I know that you don't either. How does the church grow? Well, the church grows in this way and in this way only. When goats become sheep... When men and women who stand outside of the church are not drawn into the church in their unbelief, but they're confronted in their unbelief, and they become Christians. How do they become Christians? Only as a result of the preaching and a certain kind of preaching. A preaching which confronts them in their sin, as Peter did. A preaching which calls them to repentance. A a preaching which drives drives them in faith to the feet of a dying Savior and a resurrection and exalted Savior. Only that will do. Anything else is just uh, the noise and the chaos of the world. That's not the church. That's not Christianity. Our interest should be to be like this. But that leads me now under a third heading uh, to put it in still yet another way, this picture of the early church. And I I think I've already alluded to it in this way, but let me say it again and place special emphasis upon it now. And that is that the church as she was then uh, is the church church What she always is at her best, and that is a spirit-filled church. You see, it would be one thing to look at the practice of the early church and to simply leave matters there. But that would be a very incomplete picture. What made this so effective? What gave them favor with men? What led to conversions and even explosive growth? What led to her salvation and her sanctification? What led to this insatiable desire for the preaching of the word and for Christian fellowship? such that you could hardly satisfy them. You would give them their all as a preacher one day and they'd be back the next. Preach to us again, they said. Well, you see, it wasn't the people, it wasn't the things themselves, even the preaching and the sacraments, uh, a gathering of the best sorts of Christians. Those things in themselves are not enough and they can never produce these results any more than the methods of the world. You can you can have all of those things and still have nothing if you don't have the power and the life of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul tells us in First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, is not a matter of talk, but of power. You can be a man or a church that's full of talk or even full of people. But if you know nothing of the life and the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll know nothing of what these people knew. That's the great thing. And I think this is something that we all must know something about ourselves. For there are seasons in the Christian life when we can't get enough. When every word of scripture comes to us with power, when every worship service is to us a kind of heaven on earth, when praying is a constant delight, that's what was happening here. Again, they were experiencing the fullness of heaven and the result, uh, the fullness of the spirit, excuse me. And the result was that she knew his power. It wasn't, in other words, a lifeless formal thing. You can have a church that's full of all of these practices and yet be lifeless. But here we read in Acts chapter 2 of the church, alive like she had never been. People were praising God and coming into the church daily. Everything was done with great interest and profit. You didn't have disinterested hearers. You had interested hearers. You didn't have uninteresting sermons. You had interesting sermons. Not in the modern sense. That's not what I mean. I mean in the sense that God was alive among the people and he was getting their attention. Now, I'm speaking of a spirit-filled worship service, a spirit-filled church. Acts chapter 2 isn't the only place we read that. In fact, we've read about that in another place, in Acts cha- uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5. Here is the connection that I'm drawing in Acts chapter 2, in which Paul draws in Ephesians chapter 5. It is the connection between the presence and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, a season of remarkable blessing, either in the Christian life or in an, an entire church. And the kind of Christian meetings that result. When Christians together are full of the Spirit, you'll have a a certain kind of fellowship. A certain kind of worship service. And that's what the the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. He's speaking in a post-Pentecost fashion. He is talking to Christians who have experienced the fullness of the Spirit. The Spirit has been outpoured. And yet, what is his message to them? It's a present, continuous uh, imperative. He says... Be filled with the spirit or be being filled with the spirit as those who are full of the spirit. Well, my message to you is seek to be filled with the fullness of the spirit in a still greater way. And when that is true, when the church is growing in in the fullness of the spirit. Or I could say in her capacity to experience his fullness. And when the spirit comes upon the church in this way. What is the result? What does Paul say will occur as the result of believers being filled with the Spirit? Well, he doesn't emphasize that they will have wonderful experiences. He does in other places, but not in Ephesians chapter 5. The emphasis, once again, is upon the kind of Christian meetings and Christian fellowship that will result. It means this, Paul says. A man who's full of the spirit, a church that's full of the spirit will be like this. They'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They'll be singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The church that's full of the spirit will be set singing. What will she be singing? Well, she'll be singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Yes, not only in her heart, but to the Lord and even to one another. It's a corporate thing. The spirit filling not just individuals but churches. And as he does so, he fills their mouths with songs of praise. Let us see, beloved, it's his ministry to us. It's not just our ministry to him. We can view it that way. It's something that we offer to God. It's a sacrifice of praise. But it's also his ministry to us. What is it that ever said about a man who hated God now singing the praise of God? With a heart of gladness and joy. And simplicity as we read here. It's only as a result of the Holy Spirit coming to him. And as he comes to him and fills him he sets him singing. He gives him the desire to sing. Even I would go beyond that. The ability. Yes the ability to sing. As a gift of the Spirit. One of the things I've noted many times from this pulpit. That stands out particularly in our own day. Is that no one sings anymore. You don't hear people singing. And there is something almost strange about coming into a church and singing because no one does it anymore. But let us be clear that this is a distinctive element of Christian fellowship. And it's something that we are still seeking from the Spirit and from the Lord. And that is the ability to sing and the desire to sing. A true church is a singing church. And one of the things that you notice in any season of revival as you found here is that there is a revival in Piety. There's a revival in preaching. But there's also a, re- a revival in singing. You, you have uh, for instance in the times. Of the first and second great awakening. This new interest in songs. So that uh, so many of the hymns that we sing. were uh, Were written in those days. The spirit as I say. Not only gives us the desire. But the ability. He gives us new songs to sing. He makes it so that if I could put it this way. You see I'm still trying to describe to you in many ways. The mystery of worship. But. It is the spirit that adds uh, the, 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 the spiritual element to our singing, such that the singing itself is an encounter with the living God. God is present in the worship. We're not just seeking him and singing to him from afar, but he has drawn near through the songs. He is meeting with us so that we could speak of the power to sing, the power which only the Holy Spirit can give, is singing after a spiritual fashion. Something that arises, uh, Paul says, from within, uh, in your heart. An inward, a new inward principle expressed in song. He he emphasizes other other things. Thanksgiving in the name of Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. That is another helpful way of describing what Luke is describing. The kind of Christian fellowship you have. Here's what the Spirit-filled church is like. Ephesians chapter 5, Acts chapter 2. As I close, I would notice four points. Having looked at the general picture, let me make certain observations. The first is salvation and the church. A point I made last time, let me make it again. Just as we read in verse 41 that people were being added to the church, as many as who were being saved, so also here the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. Verse 41, verse 47. Let us see clearly in an unmistakable way, that the lord is the one who does this the lord is the author of our salvation so he is the one who builds the church jesus christ says as much himself he doesn't say you know peter i'm going to make you the foundation and you're going to build the church that isn't what he says he says peter you're going to be the foundation you're going to be the rock and upon that rock i will build my church in another place the, the apostle paul says uh, uh one man waters the other uh one man sows the other waters but the lord gives the growth you see, that was the view of these men in that day. They knew that unless the Lord builds the house, the, the laborers labor in vain. Is it possible that we sometimes forget this? Only the Lord can build the church, but he will. It is his explicit promise to the church in every age I will build my church. He's still doing it. How does he do it? How does he build his church? He does so in this way He saves, and so he adds. Always in that way. He saves, and so he adds. But also to see it in this way, the Lord's method of building his church, it clarifies to us who should be added and also who shouldn't. Well, who should be added? Those who are Christians, those who have been saved. Our interest, in other words, is not merely in numbers as such. We don't just want to build up the church as much as we can. Indeed, I agree with Lloyd-Jones when he says there's nothing easier than gathering a crowd. It's the easiest thing in the world. The most difficult thing, the most spiritual and mysterious work is actually bringing together a gathering of Christian people that you see that's something only the Lord can do. But we should be conscious of it as well. One of the most difficult things an elder can ever do is to examine someone for membership. But our our interest there is to know, is this person really a Christian? And so far as I am able to tell, is he really a Christian or isn't he? And if he isn't, well, for all that he might offer to the church, he might have money. He might have a large family. He might be bringing in scores of people with him. But if he isn't a Christian, well, then he has no part in the church. First salvation, then membership. Saved, then added Let us also notice the priority of worship. That's something that stands out so remarkably here. How the early church was a worshiping church. It's something that's so easily forgotten today. So many Christians today are interested only in salvation. But they've lost any interest in worship. And one wonders whether they even understand salvation. We notice the order here. The spirit as he comes is a spirit of order. The liturgy as I've called it we notice the elements of the wor- uh, of the worship services we notice its simplicity that's something luke tells us in simplicity of heart verse 46 uh, this is something that is characteristic of new testament or new covenant worship there is an order yes there's elements but there but there is simplicity uh, the westminster confession of faith When it describes the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, it says, and and surely we must be struck with this as we compare, for instance, what we read here in Acts chapter 2 and what we read in Leviticus. We're struck in Leviticus by the elaborate, by the ceremonies, even by the difficulty. And yet we come along to the New Testament and what we notice is the greater simplicity. All of the ceremonies give way to these things, the praying, the preaching, the sacraments. And the fellowship. That's all you find. But nothing more. There is a greater simplicity. So there's also freedom in the spirit. What's it like? It isn't a formless chaos. This is where the charismatics go all wrong. It's an orderly yet simple kind of worship. That's how I would describe what we have here. It's what I hope I I mean in this chapter. But I also hope it's what we have here in this church. An orderly yet simple kind of worship. Not only simplicity and freedom and order. But gladness. There is this sense of joy and gladness. Why? Well, obviously, because the Lord is drawn near to them in the presence of the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, there's, there is joy. Joy inexpressible and full of gladness. That's what Peter says. And that's what they knew. You can't be full of the Spirit and be sad. No, these men were glad. Not only that, but because of the message that they had heard. Is there anything uh, more enjoyable Anything more prone to make a man's heart glad than to be told that he is a guilty sinner has been acquitted. And that the very God who he has offended has acquitted him and accepted him. That is the, the, the gladdest tidings that have ever been told. And for the spirit to bring forth the truth of that to a man's heart and his soul. Is to bring gladness to his heart. Is there not reason to be glad and to rejoice beloved? Christ has shed his blood. You are pardoned freely by his grace. If you if you merely believe this message, that's what the, the apostles were preaching. That's what they believed. That's what they were celebrating at the Lord's supper. And yet we also read that there was this element of fear. I told you we'd come back to that. Gladness, simplicity, freedom, but fear as well. Here were people drawing near to God. They were aware of the fact that God was drawing near to them. And as they did so, they did so in the way that we read of in in the book of Hebrews. They had boldness to draw into the very throne of God. They were worshiping with uh, with gladness, with faith, with assurance, in reverence and fear. I can't emphasize this enough. Too often uh, the church misses this element altogether. She's too familiar, if I can put it that way. And I, I would say that so often the church is as she is today because she's missing the element of fear. She patterns herself after Acts verse 42, but she misses verse 43. There's a quote in uh, Machen's book, The New Testament, that I come back to often. In fact, I've read it many times from this pulpit. Now, it's about Acts chapter 6, but I think it applies equally to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 6, or is it 5, tells us about Ananias and Sapphira. It's Acts chapter 5, rather. Uh, But we could say the same thing about Acts chapter 2. He says, The power that animated... Well, let me go back. Uh, It is well that this incident has been recorded. Again, the Lord killing Ananias and Sapphira. It prevents a one-sided impression of the church's life. The power that animated the church was beneficent. But it was also terrible and mysterious and holy. In the presence of it, there was joy. But that joy was akin to fear. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 The lesson is of permanent value. The spirit of God must be received with joy, but not with a common joy, not with the joy of familiarity, but rather with the wondering, trembling joy of adoration. That is a lesson of permanent value. I agree with Machen in that regard. A third uh, observation from this text is what I would call the spirit in the scriptures. We see here that a spirit filled church was not devoid of teaching. No, rather it is. And it was full of the the apostles' doctrine and preaching. Here are two things that always go together, the word and the spirit. You don't look for the spirit in the absence of teaching, in the absence of doctrine. No, rather you look for the spirit in the very fullness of the teaching of scriptures. And as we do not find ourselves with the apostles, as these men did, we do not find ourselves without their teaching nor with the spirit who accompanied it. Now, the same basic pattern remains in place, that where the apostles' teaching is found and honored, so too there will be the spirit, or we could put it the other way, the other way around, where the spirit has come upon a church, so there will be a desire to honor and to submit to God's word. And obviously, the access that we have to the teaching of the apostles can be found in the New Testament scriptures. So that though they are gone, yet we can say they are still with us. And they are with us in the pages of the New Testament. Still we are, no less than they, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. But finally, there is the doctrine of the communion of the saints. Chapter 26 of the Confession. This is a major doctrine of the church. It explains her existence It answers the question, why is there a church at all? Why didn't God just save us as individuals? Well, if you talk to a broad evangelical today, you'll have the sense that that's all God is doing. He's just saving individuals. His only interest is that you say the sinner's prayer and that you become a Christian. But that's not the picture we have here. The picture we have here is that the man who is joined to Christ is joined to the church. And that is expressed in the doctrine of the communion of the saints. The communion of the saints is one of the most obvious features of the early church. What we see here, one of the things that I like to say about our church, and I hope that I'm right in saying, is that these people actually wanted to be together. They desired to be together. They weren't just adhering to the teaching, but they were adhering to one another. They liked to be around one another. They experienced a blessed and a holy communion with one another. So to use the language of Westminster Confession, chapter 26... They enjoyed communion with Christ and so with one another. The Spirit who united them to the head united them to one another. It's the Spirit who does this. He saves us and thus he joins us to the body. And thus, as a result, they were bound to maintain, this is the language of the confession, a holy fellowship and communion in worship. You see, the communion of the saints is what makes our corporate worship inevitable. Not only that, they were also bound to to each other in such a way that they were to look after each other in the inner and outer man. Real brotherly love was present, not in word only, but indeed something which was evident in the early church. And I simply ask, is it evident still? Is there still evident brotherly love as we look after not only the inner, but the outer man? And yet not as the confession says. In such a way as to obliterate the right of private property. That isn't what you have here. This passage is not the great defense of communism. You don't find it in the church. Not even in Acts. In other words, you don't find that the the law is overturned by the gospel. You never find that. Now the law is an overturned private property remains in view these people were doing so voluntarily their desire in what they sold was for the benefit of the brothers and yet as they did so again not 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 under compulsion but freely that's the principle but we must admit as they did so there's something here which challenges us all there's a spirit of generosity and brotherly love uh, that serves as a rebuke to so many Christians in so many ages Uh, It certainly is a matter of self-examination. But as I close, I would ask these two questions. And the first is, why is this so important? Everything that I've been saying about the early church, and I hope that it's obvious. The reason this is important is because we are a church and we want to know, well, what kind of church do you want us to be, Lord? And if that is the kind of prayer that we are making to God, then we might want to know where it is that he's made his will clear with regard to the church. What is the kind of church that is well-pleasing to him? And insofar as we wish to be such a church, we have a pattern here laid down in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, in that sense, it will be a, a lesson, as Machen says, of permanent value. But the second question is, do you want to be a church like that? Is that the kind of church you want to be? Everything that we've read here, not just the outward form, but the inner life. A church which adheres to the pattern of the early church, yes, but also which is animated by the same power and the same life. Well, uh, the only thing I can say to that, if that is your desire and that is your prayer, is it is indeed mine, uh, then uh, then I, I would say you have to give yourselves to prayer, just as these men had do- had done themselves. Give yourselves to prayer as they did in Acts chapter one. Pray to God from the promise for the promise on high. Pray that He will bring the admonition to pass in your life, that you might be filled with the Spirit. And go on praying until you find that it is true in your life and in this church. Amen. And let us go now to the Lord in praise by standing together and singing hymn number 409 from the Psalter hymnal, hymn 409.